George Costa, how you doing? How's it going, Dale? It's been a minute. Yep, yep, sure has. Um, how's things going over in Mass? It's going good. Yeah, we're starting to finally dig ourselves out of the winter here, and springtime is uh, kicking in, and we're just uh, shops firing on all cylinders, and yeah, things are going good. Give us a little bit of history on uh, Renan, because like, not everybody, I mean, I don't really know yet when you started and stuff, so yeah, maybe a little... Uh insight on uh, how it started and everything yeah so um i uh graduated from mit with my master's in 2000 it was uh the spring of 2000 and i started working a full-time engineering job at a company called draper laboratory uh and when i basically got uh when i started working full-time i found that i had like a lot of free time on my hands and because the last time i had raced the bmx race was 1994 the world championships in waterford oaks michigan and uh at this point it's been almost it's been six or seven years since i've ridden a bmx bike and uh where i was living at the time was pretty close to a bmx track in massachusetts here and you know having a professional job and a lot of time on my hands i was thinking to myself oh i'm gonna get back into this so in 2000 i got back into bmx racing pretty hard and it was all i wanted to do for like the next few years and you know i raced a lot of nbl at the time um in 2003 i actually started coming up with an idea of a product to design and make which was a small data acquisition device for a bicycle for a bmx bicycle so you could measure power output and acceleration and torque and all that sort of things that all led to the product gcog which i released in 2008 it took five years to 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 actually build that product but that was also because you know i had a full-time job and you know kind of working on this on the side and everything but that was the basis for me wanting to start a brand was based on one product but in 2003 i had come across a guy his name is ken avery and he was doing design work for maxis at the time and he lived uh in boston and uh he had an idea for making a mountain bike product which was a single speed chain tensioner for mountain bikes and i had the capabilities to design and and prototype this for him so we got to talk and got to becoming pretty good friends and had decided to let's get into this and let's start uh designing and building bike parts and selling them and and so the very first product we ever sold was in 2003 and it was something we called uh the ren and roland logger so um that kind of set me up for everything and we actually still sell that to this day it's kind of funny um we just had somebody to order 10 of them for some reason like it's usually like onesie twosies there and there but somebody somewhere wanted 10 of them um so uh once i got into the process of like you know finding shops to make this for us and and you know going through the whole you know you're out of like a prototype phase you're actually trying to do real production we started going to different events we went to the single speed world championships a couple of years they were held here in the states <clears throat> in different places and uh you know just looking to try to see what we could do um in 2005 ken had decided that he wanted to not be a part of the company anymore 
and I acquired his ownership and I uh, kept on pro uh, producing the, uh, by this time now we had developed a single speed spacer kit uh, to complement the single speed chain tensioner. And um, at this time we were selling quite a bit of the rolling logger uh, chain tensioner part. And at one point it was early 2006. And I said to myself, like, I'm spending like close to a thousand dollars a month on ordering um, these parts from different machine shops all over the country. So I had decided that, that I'm going to look into possibly financing a CNC machine for myself. And I was pretty convinced that what I was already spending on stocking up this one product, I'd be able to, you know, make machine payments on basically. And timing kind of lined up. There was a trade show here in Massachusetts called East Tech. And it's just a big trade show that different machine tool builders go to. Uh, there is an American made brand. Uh, the name of it is Haas it's right there. That, that machine, it's out in Oxnard, California. They started, uh, they, they make everything here in the United States. They had a really attractive entry level CNC machine that could be run off of like a regular house, uh, 220 volt electric. And it wasn't very expensive. And I literally like walked the show, found it, was pretty impressed by it, came back the next day, like called up the brand, the, the, the local distributor in Connecticut and placed an order for it. And uh, six weeks later, I had, you know, a machine show up in my doorstep with a Russian guy with a forklift unloading it from, a, you know, it was shipped from California and it, you know, on the back of a tractor trailer truck. And this guy is like, have has it on a forklift, like wheeling it into the my two car garage of my house. <laughs> so wow. um, it was pretty funny because the machine came and, you know, even though I'm a mechanical engineer and we've, you know, taken a lot of classes on a lot of different subjects and stuff we never really had like a machine shop kind of class like how do you run this equipment so it was the very first day the machine got you know dropped off i wired it up and it comes with like a manual and i opened up the manual and opened up page one like all right where's the on button you know and wow. <laughs> basically taught myself and uh you know it, it, it was a little uh, scary at first, but, you know, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And within three days, I had fully designed and built all the tooling that I needed to do uh, a production run of 100 pieces of these parts that I was spending about $1,100 a month on. So I'd spend three nights after work and I'd have my entire month's production pretty much ready to go. And you know, at that point, I'm like, oh, you know, now I'm a mechanical engineer with a big toy in my garage. And I started thinking to myself, all right, what can I make? Like what? Like now I want to make something like BMX related, because at this point in time, I had 100 percent ownership of the company. I mean, I like mountain biking stuff, but it's not, not like my passion, not my love. Um my former partner, Ken, like he grew up mountain biking. So his, and he actually now is, I think, vice president of marketing at Vittoria Tire. So um, the, I don't know why, but like the first product that I thought of making was a gear. And 
I thought to myself, all right, you know, you know, at the time, the different brands, I think profile was like probably the most popular that was out there at the time. And that's certainly what I, the very first gear I ever made was a 19 millimeter spindle, uh, 39 tooth profile like gear, but in the style that we, uh, designed and made one for my bike, made some for some friends, had them ride it. And then I started, you know, how am I going to differentiate myself? What am I going to do differently? And I right off the bat started buying the best aluminum you could get 7075. I put a lot of time and work into the tooth design, um, of our gears. And another thing that I wanted to do was have a very expansive range. So whether we were going to sell a bunch of them or not, we were going to have them available. So we immediately on day one had from like 22 tooth all the way up to 52 tooth. And that was the first product line was the 19 millimeter. At that time in 2006, the DXR crank was, was popular, but it wasn't like the dominant thing. It was like the new thing that was out there. And I, uh, two of my friends, uh, locally, uh, Dave Bedford and, and, uh, London Wilmot, they both had said, oh, you should make a, you know, a four bolt chain ring for this DXR crank. It's going to be like the new hot thing. And I remember literally telling them, you guys are dumb. Like this thing is stupid. Like nobody's going to buy these cranks. <laughs> how much of a bad decision that was. Right. Yeah. So, but regardless, like I went and made, um, some four bolt uh gears for those guys and and they tested them out and uh everybody really liked it right off the bat and uh but it took a while to get the online mail orders to trust in it and want to have it stocked in their um you know in their stores in their online or, or traveling vending setups and at the time uh i pushed hard to try to get into uh dance comp and jnr which ended up happening after Interbike 2006. I had meetings with both of them and they came through and they, they liked what we had. They liked what, you know, the story of what we were trying to do was ever since day one, like everything I've been trying to do is try to, you know, integrate as much engineering and technology into the products that I design, um, that I possibly can. Um, so it's always been what we're trying to do here is try to, try to one up every product that we make and, 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 you know, offer something that nobody else is offering. And that was really the origin story of Renan and, and everything else that's followed afterwards is, is just been, you know, Oh, I got this next idea that I, I want to try to work on and prototype, develop, implement, and, and try to push it forward. So. When did the team stuff start to come into then? Did you start sponsoring a couple of riders? Then it obviously evolved into a team, right? <clears throat> yeah. Um, so, uh, that one friend that I mentioned, London Wilmot, he had run at, uh, he longtime team manager from the Northeast here. He had a team that was called Bizarro racing for a long time. And at one point they had gotten, um, or they had a commitment of sponsorship from intense from Pete Zalewski. and London had come to me saying that he offered, uh, like the title sponsorship position and he was going to get rid of the bizarro name to basically intense and myself and whoever wanted to, you know, have it could have it basically for a fee. Essentially it wasn't a whole lot, but uh, <laughs> regardless, like 
I think Pete turned around and told them to go kick rocks. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Hey, you know, I, I can, I can afford a little bit. So, you know, we, we basically, uh, you know, negotiated a deal and we had this team called Renan Intense. Mm-hmm. And, um, London is, is, uh, he was, uh, interesting team manager. He has very structured, very rigid program. Um, and what I tried bringing to the table, I was, I was just title sponsor. So I wasn't, you know, um, the team manager or anything, but what I had told London was that, you know, I think I could recruit some people and I aggressively started trying to go after different kinds of riders and trying to strengthen the team. And, I was responsible for adding uh, Cam Moore to the team when he was okay. like, 10 years old. So, and he was a, a monster at that age. He was, he was so good. And uh, we went after a bunch of other different riders, but at the time when it was NBL ABA, it was a different scenario. Like you could, our focus was NBL and we were trying to get good points in the NBL. I don't think he ever really thought, we would contend for a title ever. But after a year or two, we got enough riders and you could win with older riders because they had some big classes and, you know, the way the points worked and everything. And, and I wanted to push the brand more on the ABA side because I had very little ABA exposure at that point in time for Renan. So I kind of handled the ABA team management duties at the races and London handled the NBL side of things. Well, you know, come to find out like we were pretty good in the beginning and um, we ended up winning the factory title in the NBL the last two years it was in existence. And in the ABA, I think one year, our, our last year of Renan Intense, I think we took uh, top three in the ABA. And we had jumped up from like fifth to third because of grands. And, you know, we had riders, um, you know, uh, some guys like Max Eggdorf and Austin Loby and uh, Alex Anthony, who was out in California at the time racing a pro for us. So we had a, a wide range of riders. Um, but, you know, we were pretty, we were a pretty good team at that time. Um, but with very, very little funding. Then, uh, I think it was like the summer of 2010 or 2011, uh, basically London and I had a falling out and, um, I had decided after that final NBL grands that I was, uh, going to drop the sponsorship entirely. Like basically I, I went to the, the final grands. I ran the team sheets. I did everything there and, you know, driving home the team was done in my opinion, like Renan intense existed no more. We didn't even have Renan intense at, at the grands at the ABA grands that year. So at the time I had, uh, had a meeting that was in, in Louisville at that final grands with, uh, John Sawyer and Ryan Burke at answer and S squared is we were talking about, um, they were about to release a four bolt crank and they wanted to have, um, they wanted to sell it with Renan Gears OEM and we negotiated a deal and, you know, we were talking about that. And at the end of that meeting, I told both of them, I said, Hey, um, I'm pulling out of the sponsorship with, with, uh, Renan Intense and I'm looking to do my own thing. 
do you guys want to be a part of this? And, and, and I told them straight up, like, I'm not doing this for second place. Like I'm doing this to try to win. Like, I don't want to do any kind of team event or team effort unless I'm going for the win. And, uh, they were pretty interested and, uh, six weeks went by and at the, the Disney cup race of that year, we, you know, I kind of basically showed them my plan of action and what I thought I could do. I, you know, recruited away half of the Renan intense team, all the good ones, at least. <laughs> and, uh, we started off right away, like pretty, we started off pretty hot, uh, with that, uh, recruited pretty heavily with a lot of different people over the years. Um, I don't think that there's a kid I, I, I haven't talked to who, I mean, now they're all like, you know, it's kind of funny to see all these kids grow up, but now they're all like 21, 22, 23, but I was, you know, going after them when they were 10 years old, you know? Mm -hmm. So kind of, kind of surreal to some extent to see that now, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, John and Ryan like kind of trusted in what I uh, kind of told them I wanted to do. And but I was the team manager and and they were the title sponsors and the team effort at that point became answer Renan. And uh, we were pretty successful right off the bat. Um, right in the very first year, we went into the grands that year one point down on the title but made some like extremely uh i guess just boneheaded mistakes at grands and ended up losing i think we lost the first year to intense i think we lost the next three years to haro when that team converted over from intense to haro and then uh the final two seasons of the team um we won back-to-back -back titles. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The next two years in 16 and 17, we won uh, the number one factory title. And in 2018, we really gave it all we could. But um, with how they changed team points and, uh, you know, Elise Post being used on the full tilt team sheets and stuff like that. Really, I remember that. Yeah, really yeah, yeah. You, you just caught wound up over that, weren't you? Oh, yeah, it was just like, you know, uh, it, it just really threw a wrench in our whole plan um, for repeating a title, you know, three times in a row. And uh, Full Tilt won in 2018, and they haven't lost since. So, <laughs> which is, I want to give them a lot of props because uh, they won five titles in a row, and that's never been done before. And uh, they're probably going to win six titles in a row, and it's pretty amazing. So. GT never won five in a row? No. So oh. GT, uh, all of the, like the record used to be three in a row. Uh -huh. So GT did it multiple times. Uh, Haro Promax did it. Uh, and how I, I'm not sure if another team did three in a row, but um, GT did, did win. Did he? GT did win. Yeah. So that is, uh, that's certainly a record. No brand has ever won more than nine times, but I mean, if they can hold on to it, like full tilt's not that far away. So, yeah, but regardless, like, like five in a row, six in a row, possibly like five in a row, definitely six in a row, maybe 
if it happens this year. Like that's 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 hard to do. But yeah, you know, the team effort in itself is uh, it's a difficult it's a difficult thing to go through. So it was like a full time job for me. Yeah, I remember just talking to you at the races. This is going back to when I was doing the free agent stuff, and we always basically just had you know pros and a couple amateurs, you know, maximum really. But I would just see how how uh, listening to you talk. I mean, it's a whole different ball game. It's being entwined with all that, you know. So I yeah. think you you got to be a you got to be a mathematician just to know the the point structure and how it all works on that, you know. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it was, uh, you know. You just have to have um, good planning and like good infrastructure in place, and uh, and and it's amazing how reliant you become. Like at towards the end, like once we got in our groove of figuring things out, it became very reliant on having at least three extremely strong boys who uh, had big rider count, and it's a shame that you know. USA BMX did make changes over the years, but they never really made massive changes to try to really make these other classes um, worth it. So like one of the changes that they tried making was this whole thing with the elite men and women, right? Where they gave them like, it, it was like massive points if you had an elite men and women. And, and I understand their logic behind it because it was to try to give these pros who aren't very valuable to teams for the most part to give them some kind of value. But where they made a critical mistake, in my opinion, was they gave them like if the pro just made the main, you got like massive points. So the difference uh... between like first place and fifth was virtually nothing so i would literally like like basically what what they ended up doing was through the creation of their point structure to help the elite men and women they made elite women the most valuable class you could get because at most races they had nine riders or maybe 14 riders at events so i remember um we had two elite women um uh, we had um, Rachel Jones and uh, Lauren Reynolds. And I remember Lauren Reynolds in Tennessee one year calls me up and, you know, tells me that she got food poisoning. And, uh, you know, the Australian doctors are telling her to, you know, <laughs> to take race. a rest and, and not race. And she's so sorry. Uh. And, that. and I'm like, Lauren, how many girls are racing there today? You know, and she's like, I think there's nine. I'm like, you don't think you could beat one? Like, beat one. <laughs> Just beat one, please. That's all I need. You know? Right. You know, and and it wasn't like, you know, she didn't ride for us for nothing. You know, we were, we were, I, it was coming out of my budget. Like, I was paying her per, mm -hmm. per race that she went to and also covering entries and whatnot. Um, but, you know, money. it was just one of the things, uh, it ended up making that that elite women's class like the most sought after, and uh, and on top of that, like they it all coincided with these, you know, sorry to say it, but like uh, kind of cockamamie rules that came up. So they had this rule about um, the rainbow jersey, and if because they had to think about that, you know, because in elite, if you win 
if you're a world champion, then you have to um, have the, 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 the rainbow jersey. But the team rules state that all riders must be in the same uniform, right? Oh, so how could, okay, yeah. how could you possibly have, mm-hmm. you know, somebody in a rainbow jersey, you know, to be used on a team sheet that, you know, the rest of the team has to follow the, the, the jersey design and stuff. So they came up with this rule where they could put like a logo on, right? And that was the Elise Post rule, essentially. And uh, Elise won in 2017 in Rock Hill. And then, you know, the very next year, you know, uh, Fritz put her on full tilt. And, uh, <laughs> and it was just like every single race, it was like, okay yeah like she's clearly you know if you had to bet she's gonna win probably mm-hmm. but even if she gets like second third fourth it didn't really matter like it was massive points because of the point structure it, like it wasn't it wasn't um i mean it was thought out but it wasn't like all of these scenarios weren't planned out and then it all ended up like falling into place where everything got <laughs> laid out that way and uh it was kind of funny because i remember i remember having this i had like an argument with lauren once uh and she was asking me why i'm not using these elite some of these elite men and stuff and i'm like because you go to a race and they have 50 or 60 guys i need somebody who makes the main mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh gamble with them guys yeah yeah it's always a gamble like anybody can win so um but it was it was fun times but uh sometimes i i think back and i'm like damn like I'd love to like do it again. And then I, you know, slap myself in the face and I'm like, what are you thinking right now? Like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. It seems very time consuming and taking over your life just to even compete at that level, you know? Um, Yeah. You don't have, you don't have teams now then, but you do still sponsor riders, I would think, right? Yeah. I mean, I definitely uh, co-sponsor a lot of people um, who uh, mainly a lot of elites and, uh, you know, various people who ask me for a hookup on product. Uh, we have one rider that we're fully supporting. Uh, his name's Brandon Crane. He's um, uh, a rider I recruited on Answer Renan that I had. At, I think I, I recruited him at nine years old. And now he's racing 1720 expert. And uh, last year was his first solo year with me. Um, he was looking to do something different and wanted a change. And I wanted to step in and and kind of support that effort so we did that and he had a little bit of a rough going last year but um i think he's trying to regroup and try to figure things out he also just moved to texas so um you know dealing with that from california to texas but Hmm. what's your uh current thought on the uh teams and you know as we sit in 2023 it seems like every year when i'm I'm looking from afar but it always seems like still a lot of new teams involved and the team thing's still a still a big deal right um it is and it isn't i don't think it's as competitive as it was when i was doing it and i don't think it was as competitive as it was possibly you know in in your era like the gt uh era um you know it's tough because there's very little i think sponsor there's very little money out there and it's very expensive to try to you know put together a winning program essentially so uh on the team front i feel like i feel like it's it's very weak to some extent um probably the weakest it's been in years i know that you know 
I, the guys at Full Tilt are doing a great job. Don't get me wrong. But um, I don't think it's as competitive as it was when I was doing it because I, I'm not hearing stories of people, you know, getting recruited away and stuff like that and people offering up stuff and, you know, a lot of drama and whatever. I feel like a lot yeah. of that's kind of dried up because if there's at the end of the day, like the people who are pushing that series, the, the guys are the team managers who are doing it. So if they don't have a ton of drive or support or, you know, then it's going to be, it's going to, you're going to get out of it what you put in essentially. So, yeah. What's your but, current, you're very in the loop with everything. You still talk to a lot of people and obviously you're, you know, it's your job. Um, what's your thoughts on the uh, current industry on the race side? You know, what's your, uh, what do you think about everything as we are today? I think industry wise, uh, I think, you know, USA BMX is doing a great job with keeping a national racing platform, like a well-oiled machine. And that, that just keeps on pumping races week in, week out. Um, moto counts are up. So that's positive. People are buying bike parts. That's positive. Um, I do think that we had, we did definitely myself and, uh, I know other, you know, manufacturers and vendors and things. It seems like from the this previous grants to to maybe a month or two ago, uh, there was a little bit of a lull for sure uh, across the industry. A lot of people, you know, pulled back their buying. They slowed down a little bit. Um, we definitely saw like a slowdown in sales. But I would say now um, everybody wants to catch back up again because at least for us. Uh, we're getting these order requests from all of the major vendors and, and mail orders and stuff trying to get stock back up again because they're fully depleted. Why I, I get why they waited to order, but you know, um, you know, now we're tasked with being back ordered and trying to deliver on everything when, you know, over the winter time we were building up stock because we had caught up with a lot of things. And that was the first time that we had done that in a long time. So um, it was just kind of interesting to see your your podcast with Toby kind of reaffirmed to me that uh, there was a little bit of industry slowdown because he said that he experienced it also. Yeah. What kind of worked for me is, uh, you know, like we make everything here in the United States, uh, here in Massachusetts. And so long as I can get material coming in the door, I don't really have too many worries. Like I can make it happen. Um, my worry is if something happens nationwide where we have some kind of aluminum shortage or titanium shortage or you know whatever like especially with everything going on in the world these days you just kind of never know what's going to happen so trying to plan for that has been uh interesting to say the least but uh i feel bad for anyone right now who relies on asian manufacturing because man with all the stuff going on in the world right now i feel like there's going to be some massive uh shortages coming up with like shipping lanes being blockaded possibly and um i i just saw uh i think it was like last week or the week before like all the dock workers in la went on strike and oh, containers are like yeah so all kind of like stuff like that is the things that it definitely affects us but it affects us in like a positive way because what happens is anybody who's relying on overseas manufacturing is going to have their stuff tied up on a boat waiting and they can't get their product. And, and, you know, people don't care if your shit's out 
on the ocean. You know, they they want it because they have a race next week and they want to buy it. Yeah. So they're going to go whoever has stuff in stock. And, you know, anybody who's implemented like a U.S. based manufacturing is definitely um, positioning themselves good. Who are some of the brands, at least in racing, do you think that's doing a good job? So I really need to highlight uh, like anybody who's really trying to make products here. I think that that's super important. Um, you know, so kind of like the granddaddy of all of them right now in BMX has to be profile racing with, I think they just celebrated something like 50 years and the original owner is a, still a part of that brand, like pushing it forward and stuff. So that's pretty amazing. And, uh, you know, I know some of those guys down there, they're all really good guys involved in the race scene. I think another company that deserves a lot of recognition that kind of came out of nowhere um, a few years back and, and really dominated is Onyx and uh, Jim Gerhardt over at, at Onyx Products. And uh, which is funny because like his their origin story is um might want to get him on or something to tell it but I, I think it's it's an interesting one at least but it it's kind of it's kind of a funny story because uh it came from him trying to get access to a competitor's product that they kind of kind of just shrugged him off and didn't get it to him so he could have it for his kid and turn around and was like all right i'm just gonna make my own which <laughs> is pretty awesome yeah <laughs> and he did yeah. and then uh yeah, they did. And it's huge, man. They're they're on top of it. Um, and you got companies like ODI and uh, with everything that Cody's doing out in California, like that's something that maybe not a lot of people realize. But, you know, all of the ODI grips are made here in the United States. And that's totally something that a lot of people would think would get ported overseas. And it's just it's not, which is awesome to see. Um, <clears throat> another manufacturer, it's smaller, um, a little bit bigger than me uh equipment wise and stuff but there's a guy out of uh arizona a little dude components um he his name's steve i'm gonna butcher his last name caraval i think <laughs> um he's got a whole us-based shop and you know just makes a bunch of different stuff and probably not all that uh i mean he's been around forever but uh not as popular probably as i think it probably should be um and then you got guys like, um, you know, my co-host on the RT podcast, Rich Pelton. He's making some stuff here in the United States. He's doing a lot of stuff in Asia. He's doing kind of stuff all over the place. He's vending. He's kind of a jack of all trades. Um, and then I have to, I think, to kind of cap it off, I have to shout out the guys that supported us for so long with the team efforts and uh, answer an S-square down in Florida with John Sawyer and his son, Blake. Um those guys kind of stepped up when, you know, nobody, well, I guess they were the first ones to just jump on the opportunity when I had wanted to pursue this team effort. And, you know, I'm glad that we brought, you know, a couple of championships to, to that brand. So, you know. Tell us, yeah, you just mentioned uh, Richard Tangent. You two guys have a podcast. So, yeah, give us a little insight on that. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. Uh, I had, this idea i i've you know i've loved obviously listening to your podcast real the berm and coffee chatter and uh you know i loved cafe willoughby when they were doing it i loved it more for shit talking like going on the <laughs> live stream and like just really riling people up but um <clears throat> you know 
uh, it's something I felt like I'd be okay at. And I wanted to come at it from a different perspective because a lot of these shows are either X racers that interview people and talk about things, or there's a bunch of old dudes talking about the way things used to be back in the day or, you know, all this kind of stuff. But like, there's very little about the inner workings of what the industry is and, you know, what's happening on a day-to-day basis. And that was what I wanted to do. Um, I picked Rich because just kind of uh, because of social media, seeing his feed, I saw him at an IndyCar race, I think in California last year. And he was, you know, uh, posting pictures of it and everything. And I had, I mean, he's a vendor of ours and I'm, always have been like friendly with him, but it's not like we were best friends or anything. And, uh, started texting him like, Oh man, you're into this. Like, that's awesome. I'm into F1 racing. And he responds back like, no shit. So am I. So for like a year straight, him and I were just non, I guess it's been two years now because the, our podcast just crossed over the one year mark. But, um, for about a year straight in the beginning, we were just texting each other, like, like two little girls, like, uh, about F1 racing, really nothing about BMX <laughs> for the most part. Probably 99% of our text messages are about F1 racing. 1% is about BMX. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I thought it was, I thought it'd be a good idea. Uh, he's, you know, somebody else who's a really good, like off the cuff talker. And it's interesting. We both have similar businesses and in, in the product side of things, I certainly, do not do the traveling circus uh, gig that they do going to all the races and, and setting up and vending. But um, as far as being two different manufacturers, one on the East coast, one on the West coast, you know, we both do make stuff here in the United States. We have similar equipment, Um, you know, just the struggles and, you know, the different things that we go through on a day-to-day basis I wanted to put out there and, uh, and we cover a little bit of BMX, um, in the beginning, but we structure the podcast into, into three sections, which is, um, BMX business and F1 racing. And, um, yeah, it's been pretty good. I'm pretty happy. I like with it. The F1 what do you think of it? I really like it. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Cause say, cause you're up to date on the industry stuff and that, and you're very, yeah, you know, a lot of stuff I don't know. So I'm always interested in that, but I really like your F1 little part, you know, so um, <laughs> I'm not just jumping on the, the Netflix bandwagon, but I always liked F1, you know, England's got a, you know, a rich history and, you know, I watched it, you know, on a Sunday after the races, we'd always go home. You'd race on Sunday and you'd go home and F1 would be on Sunday night, you know, with the Nigel Mansell days and, you know, Schumacher and, you know, our history, yeah. you know, Damon Hill and, and uh, Coulthard, all, all of them, Jensen Button. So, yeah, I like it. I still watch F1. I, I like the Netflix stuff. And uh, I like you guys talking about it. Yeah, so it's pretty, pretty, pretty funny. You like the uh, Haas teams, your thing, right? Uh, well, I do like Haas, but they're like my second yeah. favorite team. Uh, Red Bull is definitely my top team. I've been a fan of them going back to when Sebastian Vettel had won uh, four titles with them. But um, I, I like the teams that are, you know, interesting. I love anybody who talks shit or is... There, or whoever's like the BMX version of an F1 team. And, and some of these guys are, it's, it's pretty hilarious yeah. to, to hear. Um, but yeah, Rich and I went to the F1 Austin race last year and hung out and did that with just total fans. Uh, it was a, it was a great time. Um, but yeah, it's a great sport. I love it because 
it it there there's no other sport in the world that brings that much technology into their sport and for people who don't know like these teams the the top teams at least mercedes and red bull they have over a thousand employees devoted to to high performance of two cars which is Mm -hmm. mind-boggling and the millions of dollars that are involved to support that effort just blows me away um and and they have so much money that they have to impose salary caps on themselves like they, they have a budget cap per year now on the teams that they have to follow and the top teams some of the top teams are struggling because they almost bought their way out of problems in years past and now in particular mercedes like they Mm -hmm. can't buy their way out of this problem that they're in right now so it's fascinating to me and i i've got try to model my business in renin uh to try to bring as much you know engineering and technology into the brand as i possibly can so I've got two BMX friends. One of them I went to school with, and he still races in 50 and over in England, uh, Adrian Scott and my friend Steve Driver, who Steve listens to the podcast. And uh, they work in the uh, F1 industry down there in, you know, Milton Keynes or I think down that way. Because lot, all, all the industries in the same little spot down there, isn't it? You know, or a lot of it is in the UK. So, and, and, and I know Adrian's and Stephen, they've been on different teams and stuff. I guess they get poached and, and move around teams and stuff in the background. But I know Adrian, I'm pretty sure he was with Red Bull when Vettel won. And I think he told me at the time, yeah. every single person in the company uh, got £10,000 bonus when he won one, one, the, one of the years he won the title. I think he won three, but one of the years when Adrian was there, he was telling me everyone got 10G. It was pretty cool. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Like You hear all kinds of stories. There's, uh, there's stories uh, of uh, when Fernando Alonso and Lewis Hamilton were on McLaren together that uh, Fernando Alonso would buy presents for all of Lewis's mechanics to, to basically to basically say like like take care of me and don't right. worry about this guy right now like just yeah. dirty like <laughs> just uh, awesome he, he definitely made a good move changing teams uh, you know? this year yeah yeah Fernando is uh, yeah. keeping the dream alive being 41 years old and yeah uh, really hit the nail on the head with Aston Martin there but um yeah, it's fascinating. I love it. I love watching it. Uh, I got into it when I was at, at MIT. Uh, one of my lab mates was, uh, you know, really into it and started watching it here and there. Didn't really get super into it until probably uh, like probably the start of the Red Bull days. Like uh, I think it was like 2010 or so. I started really watching it a lot. And uh, then the whole drive to survive thing came on. Yeah. And that just blew everything up. And and I loved it. Like the very first episode of Drive to Survive, within the first like four minutes, is Daniel Ricardo on a mountain bike jumping trails. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this is awesome, you know. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's a great it's a great. I don't watch like I don't I don't care about football, baseball, basketball, any of that stuff. Even Supercross, like I try. I've been trying super hard lately to try to follow it. It's just it's not grabbing me. It's not interesting me. And okay, interesting enough like anymore that. so yeah. yeah um but f1 still keeps me keeps me going so i got that yeah at least. that's cool <laughs> oh, no I, I thoroughly enjoy you guys talking about it it's cool and pelton's into it as well um let's finish up with uh one last question uh what is the future for renan and uh, yourself in bmx uh i mean my goal is to just keep on developing you know as i get you know more ideas to make new products we're going 
going to slowly add products to the lineup. Um, one of the downsides to having the team for seven or eight seasons, whatever it was, is uh, that I only had developed like two or three items over that time period. And in the year that I let go of the team, I think I developed like six new products that one year. And that's what I really need to be doing. You know, I, I own a brand. I don't own a brand to have a BMX team. I own a brand to develop products and to try to come up with new and innovative things. And uh, that's that's my focus is doing that. I'm trying to make this place as efficient as possible. We are integrating uh, automation and a lot of uh, uh, more advanced like programming techniques on how we make products. So um, just trying to stay on top of all that. But at the end of the day, we don't have a lot of people that work here. There's only three guys here currently. And uh, one of them is my longtime employee, Sean Dupree, who is, uh, has, you know, kind of left BMX racing, but now he's like all into mountain bike and dirt jumping and, you know, going crazy on the mountains. But um, uh, yeah, so we're just gonna keep things going and uh, try to bring more uh, innovative products to BMX. All right, George, if anybody wants to get hold of you, make a purchase, check you out on social media, where's the best place to find you? The website's renandesigngroup.com. On Instagram, we are Renan BMX. On Facebook, it's just Renan Design Group. And if anybody's still left on Twitter, it's Renan Design. <laughs> Thanks, George. See you, Dale.